You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm speaking to Doc Brown, someone I've been anxious to get on the show for some time. We started gigging round about the same time. I was uh, fractionally uh, before him, I think. Um, and he is a really fascinating and incredibly productive person. He is uh, not only an excellent stand-up comedian with a, a fine line in uh, comedy rap, but he's also a, a, a very real and professional and influential rapper. He's got a bunch of albums which you can check out under the name Doc Brown. And we will go on to talk about the pitfalls of having a comedy name that is the same as your rap name. Probably not something that's going to crop up in the practice of many of you, but really interesting to hear how someone as just industrially confident and phenomenally, he's the sort of guy that's got his own production company, you know, one of those guys. He goes, I can do this, I can do this, I'm doing that. He acts, he writes, he produces, um, he raps, he does comedy. And yet, despite that incredibly kind of uh, uh, productive and unshakably kind of self-believing, uh, self-believing, is that a phrase? Um, despite that exterior, he is someone who, by his own admission, and we'll talk about this in the episode, uh, is a patchwork of anxiety and depression. So... It looks like we're in for some absolutely classic com-com. Um, it's a joy talking to Ben. He he is um, articulate and passionate. And, oh, I remember there's, I've, there's, we started, no, this might, the beginning of this might be a bit uh, truncated. We started with a half-hour chat, which I've put on the, the Insiders Club at uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, all about how he hosted the LA BAFTAs a year or two ago and had to host and write his own jokes, prepare his own material, and then go through, jump through endless hurdles with producers in order to go and tell kind of almost roast jokes to an audience comprising of Ewan McGregor, Tom Hanks, Samuel L. Jackson, and just a, you know, a galaxy of Hollywood stars. So there's a good half hour on that, which we actually started our conversation with. The episode was already a little bit unwieldy, so I have separated that off to the Insiders Club. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Without further ado, this is Doc Brown. Let's talk about that, the confidence required to do that part of your, your job. Oh, well, and I say it's your job. You referred to having finished comedy. Are you, yeah. you're on, you, when we were speaking, you said you're on sabbatical. I am do on you, a sabbatical, most definitely. Do you feel like you'll go back to it? hundred percent. Great, great. Let's keep talking about it now. I didn't know whether we should be talking about it in the past tense. In, in terms of your origin as a comic, from what I know about you through research rather than anything you've said yourself, mm. you started off 
uh, as a rapper and you started off specifically as a rap battler. Yeah. That's where you got known. Yeah, so yeah. I guess that is one of the things whereby if a comedian thinks of like a, a battle rapper, they'll be like, fuck, I could never do that. Is there an equivalent thing where battle rappers or rap battlers, I don't know which way around the term, <laughs> um, is there an equivalent thing where they think, oh, comedy, that's like the real thing? Or Yeah, I'd say the, the respect is mutual and it's not lost on either party how many similarities there are in crossovers. Sure. So rap battling now is essentially stand-up comedy. I mean, if you look at the way Don't Flop reinvigorated uh, the battle world, when I was doing it, it was improvised. So you just had to come up with it, which is potentially really shit in rap in the same way as it's potentially really shit in comedy. Yeah, right. In, in, improv just makes people panic. It makes me panic. It just makes me think of someone... Uh, or four people in different coloured waistcoats just yeah, ruining my fucking life, <laughs> you know? But Don't Flop, organisations like that, reinvigorated and reinvented the rap battle by treating it like boxing. So we'll have this match-up, these two guys, they don't like each other, go away for three months, write three verses, research as much as you want into that other person's life, make it as personal as you want come back and destroy each other and it just heightened it it made it so much about the the skill of of writing you know in the same way as a, a billy Connolly, you know storytelling uh ripping people's uh images to shreds um it was just a very very uh new and entertaining way to do it and the way that it evolved over time was um Became, it became closer and closer to live comedy. So they started having uh, compliment battles mm-hmm. where you had to beat the person by being exceptionally nice. That's just that's just straight-up comedy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have mm-hmm. to have a comic sensibility to do that. The, the, the normal battles without humour would have been pointless. The imp- improv in my day, it was a lot of it was about blustering, male posturing... And aggression, you know. Um, the reason I won battles back in the day, looking back, was because of humour. Mm-hmm. I was never as tough as the other guys. It was obvious. I wore glasses, you know, as a nerd, I was more well-spoken, whatever. You know, there was only one way for me to win those battles, and that was to be self-deprecating and say, basically, isn't it embarrassing that I've just outsmarted you when you're, yeah. you're Mr. Hip-Hop? Yeah. You know, that was my whole shit. I've got a cardigan. Yeah, that was my whole shit. So that, that kind of predates the sort of the conclusion of 8 Mile, doesn't it? Like, that's the whole... Yeah, yeah, when, I, whole... When, when I saw 8 Mile for the first time, I actually saw it in Boston with my wife when it came out in the cinema. And cinema in America is an interesting experience, you know. It's like a live show. People yeah. jump up and whoop and cheer. And they comment on shit. Yo, don't go in there, son. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yo, what you do that for? Yo, you out your mind right now. I love it, it's hilarious. Um... But uh, that scene, I mean, the film is essentially Rocky with rap, if you're into, you know, film theory, but still a great film. And that scene where he disses himself was so emotional for me because I was like, this is what I did. This was this was my life. Obviously not to the same level of skill, but that's what I did. I the first ever time I did it, I got dissed for my glasses. I got dissed for sounding posh. I got you know, dissed for not having, like, a tough enough-looking crew. 
I got dissed for certain things that people knew, you know, whatever. And my instinct said, own it. Not the second time I did it or the third time even, but by the fourth time, fourth or fifth time, I was very much like, know what you're going to say, but let's get, let's get on to the next level. Because this is a, it's a game of intelligence. It's not about, can I kick your ass? That's not what this is right now, you know? So watching that scene was deeply emotional for me. But still, no ties, no nothing in my mind that made me ever think that I would have a career in, in comedy. And at the same time, all I'm devouring creatively really is rap music, indie music and sitcoms and comic movies. It's all I ever loved, you know. My dad had me watching Harold Lloyd and the Marx Brothers when I was little. I was raised right as I got older. You know, by the time I was 10, 11, I was watching Monty Python's Flying Circus, Rise and Fall of Reginald Perry, which I didn't understand at all, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember watching that watching when I was too young to shit, understand yeah. what was going on, of course, yeah. Um, I didn't watch the, the you know, uh, Duty Free and stuff like that. My dad wouldn't have it. He'd be like, this is shit. Can I watch The Good Life? Okay, okay. The Good Life would be like a compromise, you know. <laughs> he was a Nazi when it came to intelligent, challenging comedy, and it's all he wanted me to watch. And um, But I never watched stand-up. Right up to when I did it, I'd never seen it. What's the... Just before we leave the, the rap battling, what's the state that you're in before you go into it? Is it a similar gig state whereby you're yeah. thinking, I can control certain controllables and there's a lot of stuff I can't control? Very similar. The big difference would be that I had no experience, no stage craft, you know. Uh, I in just in hope, stand-up? You know, in, in, in rap. In rap, okay. I, I just Just hoping for the best. But very similar in terms of the nerves... The thinking, like, let me try and hit on these things, maybe that this will help me. But there were so many unknowns because it was improvisational. So part of it was, a big part of it was sometimes just get fucked, just get drunk and hope for the best. Whereas stand-up, I, I wouldn't have had the balls to do that. And what what was different about you as a... How old were you doing? How old were you when you were I rapping? I started when, battling? when I was, like, 18 or 19. Okay. What was different to 18-year-old Doc to the people in the audience who were looking at the battlers going, oh, I wish I, wish I had the balls to do that, but well, I didn't? It's funny because obviously, you know, I'm seen as a sort of grandfather of, 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 of rap and grime in this country now. So I get invited to events, you know, with actual young people. And uh, I look at the crowds now. Um, grime is different, but like hip-hop, the hip-hop crowds here, they're very, it's very middle-class, it's very white. Um, when I was in doing rap battles and stuff, you know, those crowds were fucking, you know, it was just male, it was not mixed, it was working class, it was hood, man. It wasn't even working class, it was hood. And, uh, you know, there was fights all the time, shows got shut down at the drop of a hat because people had weapons people getting stabbed, people getting beat up. You know, it was a completely different time. So the me of, of, of those times, you know, I was, I was always on my guard. I was always on Amber. I was not a street guy. I knew street guys, but I was not a street guy and I never claimed to be, you know. Um, I think the reason, part of the reason I moved so quickly in comedy was because no one had heard my voice before, you know. 
I just hadn't heard this experience and I didn't even realize that I could uh, bank on it, you know, that it was a currency for me. It took me a while to, to recognize that. But it's very hard to articulate and in the same way as I'm sure it's hard for listeners to imagine what it's like being the least street person in a room of 1800 to being the most street person in a room of 1800 seemingly in a short space of time but that's my life it's that something is might be a bit of a side note but did you ever regret the fact that doc brown was both your rapping identity and your stand-up i regret it to this day i was talking about this in an interview the other day with a paper let's talk about the name i said oh that fucking name man i just i didn't think i would have a career in stand-up so when I, I was encouraged to do it by some producers I was working with at the BBC, because I was writing gags um, behind the scenes as a part-time job while I was still a youth worker. I was writing gags for a Lenny Henry show on Radio 4 and for a, two or three other shows. Um, and there's producers there who really encouraged me to do stand-up, um, in particular... Uh, ben Walker, I don't know if you know him, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, uh, Paul Schlesinger. And and they really encouraged me to try it. And, you know, they knew that I could rap. They knew I was musical. They were like, you know, talk about that or, you know, mention that. I didn't know what I was doing. But it just seemed natural to use that performance name to do it. But I wasn't thinking long term. It's my biggest regret in show business, bar none, because is, is not using my real name from the start. Because why? What effect has that had that you wish you could undo? A constant effect of like, um, could you uh, like even even today? I did some voice work and they were like, could you play Doc Brown for the? I was like, it's not a fucking character. It's me. You know, people still have that thing of like, it's like Ali G and Sasha Barrico. No. Right, right, okay. It's not fucking that. It's just my mistake. I should never have chosen the name. I'd chosen to keep the name, you know. Um, from the start, my stand-up has been about a retired rapper, you know. <laughs> it's been about a guy who is not cool anymore. Yeah. That's, that's the essence of my stand-up. It always has been. Um, and the smart people get it, and the ones that aren't that smart don't get it. Um, but there is no character, there is no separation. And would it be easier in terms of your rap career, which I know is re I was listening to Stemmer on the way here, and we'll talk oh, about Stemmer, um, but your return to, uh, uh, to, to releasing rap albums, mm. um, is it... Would it be more useful to you if you were able to sort of completely separate? Yeah. That's Doc Brown. That's the rapper. Ironically, and I'm ben, ben Smith. It fucked. It fucked the music thing as well because I just came back, put out an album which I was really proud of, and people were just like, "Where's the jokes?" Fuck. So it fucked me. It absolutely fucked me. Uh, the only thing it hasn't fucked is my acting career because I was just like, "Fuck that name." I am me. I'm Ben Bailey Smith. And this is my acting career, and at least I can have some ownership over that. Jesus, I had no idea. Yeah, it's, when, when, it's it's so fascinating 
the 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 dynamic between the outside perception of someone's success yeah, yeah. and how they feel about it. Because, oh, yeah, oh, no, you know, I mean, like, do you feel like a success? Nah, I never feel like a success. I I feel like uh, like a lot of I think like a lot of artists feel. I feel like a fraud. I feel like somebody who's just sort of weaselled his way in and somehow got in there and somehow kept it going. And I've this is my tenth year in show business. I got into show business thirty years old with a child and a bun in the oven and a mortgage, and I was a part-time youth worker the first time I stepped on a stage and did stand-up. When I did So You Think You're Funny, which was my third ever gig, was the first round of that competition. I wasn't in it for a career in stand-up. I was in it because the prize was five grand, and I fucking needed five grand. It's very simple. That's all it was, you know? Ten years later, I'm still here, thanks to stand-up. You know, stand-up got me auditions to, to act, which is what I wanted to do when I was a little kid, you know, but just never really believed it was a possibility. Um, stand-up got me into writing, copywriting, you know, which is probably my biggest earner, writing, you know, script for, for adverts, you know. Is that, you, you still do that at the minute? Yeah, I say it's my main job. I mean, people don't know that, but that's fine. I like it that way, you know. I... I, I uh, my whole thing over the past three years has been to earn a living through entertainment without ever for a second compromising what I find interesting. So I meet entertainers every day who are like, yeah, I had to do that. I had to do that terrible shit job because, you know, I've got rent to pay. I'm like, fuck your rent, man. You haven't even got kids, you know? Mm. I've got high stakes that I'm playing with, right? I've got two <laughs> big children to feed and they get more and more expensive people with every day. I've got a teenager to feed, you know. Teenagers need money every day. Um, but it's, it won't change my decision-making because I, there's, I don't think there's anything I hate more than shit art. I just, it just drives me up the wall. So anything I can do to just be able to say no... I will do. And um, there are certain areas, like I say, copywriting, there are certain other things I can do that have no impact on the rest of my career. That I will do. It will pay for the following six months of living or nine months or, hey, praise the Lord, maybe 18 months if it's good enough gig. And during that time, I can work on my movie. I can fucking work on, you know, I can learn to, to play the saxophone. I, I can study jazz, you know. I can, do you know what I mean? I, I can be a fucking artist, which is the only thing I'm interested in. I'm not interested in fame. I'm interested in money to the extent that it makes me comfortable enough to get deeper into art. Like, that's the only thing that money means to me. So this is Doc and or Ben. I I'm so grateful to him for being so open. We're going to go on to talk about some really disarming uh, stuff. And I think one of the things I, I enjoyed talking uh, with him so much, one of the reasons I enjoyed talking with him so much, is that it's just an insight, isn't it? Into how from... Do listen, I, I think I said as much to him. 
Doc is someone I've always been a bit jealous of. Not just of his material. I mean, I'm no rapper, but, the, you know, he's a roof-raising stand-up. He's very, very good. But he always seemed to be someone who just made everything work for him. You know, the, the, the universe, he had an idea and the universe sat up and listened. That's how it seems from the outside. It's fascinating to hear how the inside story is very, very different. I think almost everyone that's been on this show has some degree of uh, an exterior and an interior dynamic whereby everyone can look at someone's successes from the outside and think, oh God, I'll never be like them. And then you get talking to them, you scratch the surface and you realise, no, they're just as pounded and worried about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I, I also think talking to someone who made the decision that Doc did about his uh, about this enormous tour he was offered is you never get to hear people talk openly about those kind of decisions, about the things they didn't do, the choices that they made in the negative. You know, we hear a lot about people's opportunities and how they embraced them. And it's fascinating to hear what went into turning down such an incredible opportunity as that. So thank you so much to... I can never decide whether to call him Doc. What do I call him to his face? Doc, I think. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I urge you as well to check out his music on Spotify. Listen, we'll talk a little bit about the album Stemmer that he released recently, S-T-E-M-M-A. He's really good. So um, get involved with the Doc stuff. And if you are completely new to him, do there's, there's no better place to start than just having a little look for some of his raps on YouTube from um, a good few years ago now. But they are properly good. His, his one of like translating gangster speak using cards is uh, really, really impressive. Very, very funny. And just one of those bits you think that's going to work in literally every room, every environment. So more from Doc in just a second. Just one or two quickies. Um, Listen, there might be some teething problems technically over the next few weeks. Should I should I get into this now? There's going to be some ads, guys. There's going to be some ads. And um, there may already be ads on this episode that you're listening to. They may have popped up. I, I, we've shifted gear now. Um, and uh, the hashtag is six years of free content. So uh, I hope very much that uh, those of you who grind your teeth when you hear adverts on a podcast will stick with the show. I hope I'm giving you sufficient content that you'd be excited enough about it to stick with us. And if you are a member of the Insiders Club, you'll be happy to know that there will be all of the new episodes from now on uh, will be simultaneously uploaded to the private Insiders Club feed ad-free. So when you join the Insiders Club, you are not just getting access to the various different episodes and strands like Comedy Critique, You Interview Stew, where as a member of the Insiders Club, you can pitch to interview me about any subject. And Comedy Critique, we've recently heard from Christian Tolbert, uh, Janan Yunis, Matt Hudson, some incredibly um, different and far-ranging styles. And we all get to use this, this workspace app and offer our critique to that act. And then I kind of curate them and turn that into an episode so you can listen to it as you're running or in the car or what have you. Um, not only are you going to get all of that stuff, all of the extra material, as I said, from this episode alone, there's a, a solid half hour on um, what it's like backstage comparing and prepping to compare and writing to, to host the LA BAFTAs in 2016. So you get all of that stuff, plus you get all forthcoming episodes completely advertising free so never been a better time to join up for the insiders and i hope that those of you who aren't members of that club can grit your teeth and bear with us as uh, as we uh, we shift into a different gear in which uh, who knows in the future you may hear me talking about a mattress um but listen guys there's two children now <laughs> and um and 
the the Insiders Club is a select group of uh, of excellent uh, elite people, and um, part of the reason it is. Uh, part of the reason I've had adverts is that it is very select, if you get what I'm saying. But I mean, that, I think that benefits it. The more of you join it, I can't see a future where the Insiders Club will become completely unwieldy. And I love when we have meetups like we did the one in Edinburgh. We had sort of 45 members there um, all meeting and chatting and getting to experience that uh, that fantastic live podcast with Alice Fraser. So um, so that that's that's what's going to be happening. I wasn't quite sure if I sort of prepared that. Oh, oh, I tell you what, um, there are some if you do have any technical issues, this is going to be I imagine the next couple of months, certainly at this end, are going to be quite fraught with button pressing and logging into things I'm unfamiliar with. Um, Nathan Wood, our editor, is doing a superb job, as always, keeping up with my ludicrous last minute requests and failures to understand basic elements of the technology. But please do email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you have useful technical feedback. If you say, oh, this thing happened twice and then that beeped and it sounded weird, anything like that, I'm absolutely uh, interested in to hear that feedback. Please send that to me with the subject line, six years of free content and two children. All right. <laughs> Thanks, gang. Um, that'll do for now. Remember, the tour is on sale. Uh, Comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Please do come along and see me. That is selling great guns. This could be a tip over year. Let's not hex it. Let's not hex it. It's, it's, it's selling rather well. And I'm uh, really excited about it. It's a lovely way to start the year th- looking at the numbers tick up on all these venues and going, oh, OK, OK, then. So um, thank you to everyone who's bought tickets already. If you are in the southwest or middle or southeast of the UK for this section of the tour, this this uh, the first half of it um, over the next couple of months, then comedianscomedian.com slash tour and come and see me. The Soho dates are on sale now as well. And um, I've just heard someone else excellent is at Soho, but I'll save you. I'll save that to uh, to tell you at the uh, the end of this episode. All right, that's it. That's it for now. Back to Doc Brown. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You've got, I think, one of the most broad careers of anyone I've had on the show. Because 
Like, there are plenty of people who used to do something to a high skill level. To yeah, a certain we know, level I mean, we know doctors, right, who've become stand-ups. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I'm and... pretty sure you're my first rapper. I've had comic rappers. But, like, your, your rap career is a serious rap career. Yeah. And I do... I've got, I've got a lot to talk about that, but I want to I focus on you, the comic, first before we get to that. But um, in terms of... Like, you seem to me to have more self-belief than nearly any other comic. When we worked together, yeah, you were just... I remember, do you know what? I remember when we were on that tour in Aberdeen or wherever, you know, with the... It was little, a tour of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I they, remember... It was so successful that we had to pull a gig in Amman <laughs> because it was a 500-seater that sold three tickets. That was it, that was it. That's facts, people. Uh-huh. Little Callum driving us around. What am I Callum? Goldsmith, Brown, <laughs> Cook, <laughs> Shut, three tickets. Shutting down tours, <laughs> left, right, centre. <laughs> One of the things I particularly remember you saying was because you were so new to it at the time. Yeah, yeah And I remember great. just kind of marvelling at... You, you know, I think you had a really good agent because obviously very early doors, someone saw the potential in you as a product. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this guy can yeah. definitely... Re- if, you do, if you do the proper tea rap or the, you know, the bare jokes, you know, the kind of rap translations, the slang translation rap, yeah. that's definitely going to storm it everywhere. And they did, and they're great pieces of work. Um, I, clearly, very quickly, someone picked you up and went, you're big star material. Because I remember you telling me at the time that... You, and you, you weren't phrasing it like, hey, I'm big star material at all. But I remember <laughs> I'm thinking, kind of a big deal. Yeah, it wasn't like that at all. But I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, because you said, yeah, my agent said I should get into... Or, or said, in order to help me act, I should... They, they're going to hook me up with an actor. And I think you started to get like one-to-one... I think yeah, you were talking about getting right. one-to-one acting lessons with... Name escapes me. His name... Actually, I bumped into him on the tube the other day. His name is Shay Baker. Okay. Uh, and he worked with uh, Kwame Kwe Amar, um, who people who know about theatre will know about Kwame. Uh, and, yeah, he coached me one-to-one, um, and it was invaluable. Uh, and, f- and I actually had the chance to thank him face-to-face the other day when I bumped into him on the tube. Um, but I think what really... I. I'd already done the legwork when I was a kid. Okay. I just never believed I could be an actor. And that was a class distinction. I, I felt that I was barred from it. It was it was a teenage paranoia, weed-induced sort of paranoia, working-class chip-on-the-shoulder thing about acting, I think. Okay. Um, but actually, once I got into it and once I worked with more and more talented actors, I could feel myself getting better. And your, But your self-belief, I remember at the time, just radiated off you. And even now, if you look at your career and the different things that you've done to mm. a really professional and successful extent, like, I also remember at the time you talking about, I think talking on stage, maybe socially... Um, about how before you got into comedy you'd been in a pretty dark place you were smoking yeah. too much weed you were depressed yeah. and part of comedy was an attempt to I've got to do something it was like, hugely it began as hugely therapeutic um, a huge release for tension anger self-loathing it was really really useful the first three or four years but depression and anxiety need to be dealt with properly you can't control it yourself self-will is not going to get you anywhere in this world you have to let go you have to be vulnerable and you have to hand your bullshit over and I never did that I just went huh maybe I could just be a star with this and talk about stuff on stage and it'll all be fine it wasn't and that's the main reason 
I had to take a break from stand-up in the past year, you know, because partly I did, yeah, I did want to concentrate on my writing and my acting, but stand-up nearly killed me, man. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell any stand-up how lonely this profession can be, you know. You're alone with it. You create it alone. You get on, you get in your car and you drive alone to where the gig is and you go alone into the green room or the, the, the your dressing room and you prep alone and then the compare calls you and you go on stage alone and you you kill or you die alone and then you go back to your hotel and you deal with the fallout from killing or dying alone and then you drive back home alone and then whether you killed or you died you died your partner whoever you live with your flatmate they can't ever truly understand the last 24 hours of your life and you do that every day for as long as it fucking takes to make a career out of it and there are certain people certain colleagues of ours they're built for that lifestyle i'm not built for it so it really there's a wry smile on my face that no listener obviously would be able to see when you say the self-belief poured off you because my life is an unlimited, never-ending patchwork of anxiety and depression, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And to take that into the world of show business where you're a, a, a face, you're a public figure, is... Very dangerous, I say. Um, and to deal with it head on and to work with it, I had to put stand stand up aside for a minute because it's such an emotional uh, pastime, like stand up. Mm. You know, it's a, you it, to do it well, you need to pour yourself into it. And there were so many times where I just felt. Ironically, this name that I created, Doc Brown, I'm have to hide behind this shit, man, because because Ben is struggling right now, you know. So if they want Doc Brown, cool, because I can give them Doc Brown. And that's the only time that I felt like thankful for keeping the name, because at least I can go. You know what? Ben's not feeling too great right now, but these these motherfuckers want Doc Brown, and I can give them 20 minutes of Doc Brown, you know, and it pays the bills, you know. Um. But yeah, I got to a stage where I just, I couldn't face it. I just didn't have the the confidence or the self-belief to be Mr. Saturday Night every night. And I was just losing, I was just completely just losing track of, of everything, losing track of my life, really. The, the thing that no one talks about is we operate at an hour when the rest of the world socialises. So we are part of a social uh, experience for, for normal human beings. The normals, you know, the non-comedians. <laughs> they go out and they have a good time and it's Friday night and they're meeting up with friends they haven't seen or they've been working all week and we entertain them. And then when do we see our friends? Like... I remember before Monday became a big stand-up night. Monday was the day, like, you'd call up your mates, and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? So I'd be like, fuck you, man, like, it's Monday, like, <laughs> where were you on Friday, you know? 
So I lose yeah. track of my friends and call another friend. Hey, how's it going with Lisa? I broke up with Lisa like six months ago, man. Where you been? Fuck, I've been on the road, man. You know, just losing track of my real friends and never, I've never like became like a showbiz sort of slut. I was, I was just never been interested in that. Fame's never, ever driven me at any point. Um, but I did feel alone. I felt really alone. And nothing made me feel lonelier than stand-up, I think. Um, because in the same way, like you were saying, like it fascinates you how nobody sees um, a, a person's career quite like that, that person. It's the same in the other direction. So I'd look at all the other stand-ups and just think, you lot are made for this. This is not... I, I don't know how you do this. I... It's, it's, I can feel it slowly driving me mad. Uh, and um, I, knew I, had to, I knew I had to just reevaluate. It strikes me that trying to use stand-up to get happy is a bit like using cocaine to learn how to meditate. Exactly. You can't, <laughs> you can't use externals. If, if you feel vulnerable in any way, if you feel like... I don't know. If you feel like there's an element that could push you off the rails, looking for an external to solve that problem is never, ever going to fucking help. you got to get to the root of the issue. With a lot of stand-ups, we all have the same issues. A lot of us have emotional voids or holes somewhere in our childhood or some trauma or some element, perhaps from way, way back, we've never really dealt with and we've become to make ourselves feel whole we've become people pleasers in some way and that's naturally ended up being stand-up i don't think there's any i look back on my life there's no fucking coincidence that i ended up doing stand-up comedy it's just it was, it was fated to happen it had to happen because it's the most immediate way of going am i all right and people going, yeah, you're better than all right. You're fucking amazing. Oh, good, good, good. Whereas actually, what we really need is to sit there with your best friend, someone who actually knows you, and go to him, mate, am I all right? And go, yeah, mate, you're fine. You're all right, man. I've loved you since we were fucking in primary school. You're fine. But instead of doing that, we go, let me jump on to this stage in front of 3,000 strangers and go... Please, uh, am I okay? Am I an okay human being? And they go, yeah, you're amazing. Yeah. They go, you come on stage, you go, maybe I am. Maybe, may, no, maybe I'm not just okay. Maybe I'm better than okay. Maybe I'm fucking god. And then you swagger out the next night, like the god of comedy, and the real god of comedy goes, mate, I don't know what the fuck you think you're doing, but I'm gonna make you die right now. And then you die, and you go. Oh my god! I'm not just not God. I'm fucking nothing. I'm, I'm scum. I'm not even scum. I'm like, whatever's on the scum that's on the bottom of people's shoes. I'm a fucking piece of shit. Oh god! And you can't answer the phone. Dealing with those kind of emotional highs and lows for anybody once in their life would be quite extreme. To choose to do that every day. For years, for decades, is insane. And that's what we do. That's what we do as comedians. 
I mean, it's like, when you look at it like that, it's sadomasochistic. It's, it's insane. It's, it's nutty. And so therefore, I'd treat it like any other drug. Let me put it down for a bit and see what happens if I just do it at a festival every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is as uh, articulate and accurate a summation of comedy, you know, the, the comedy mental health dynamic as I think we've ever had on the show. Boom, there you go. Is it the same in rap? Is it the same in acting? When you're kind of, there's the same kind of bright light quality to it. Mm. There's the same sort of this might fix me quality, I guess. I think there's definitely some elements. I mean, there's definitely some elements. But what differs is the nakedness. I think of all the art forms, there's this bizarre additional masochism to stand up where we make ourselves naked. We just say, my name is Stuart Goldsmith. Fucking kill me, you know? Now, you can do that right now. In fact, you can physically do it if you want. Jump up on stage and kill me. No one else does that. Not even actors who are in a play. Because actors who are in a play, they're looking for a bit of that stand-up experience. Right? So they can say, you know, my name is whatever, Dame Judi Dench, come and kill me. But you can't really, because she didn't write the play. She's a dame. You know, she's doing it. It's an honour to have her there. It's not quite the same. She is taking a risk because she might forget her lines. She might be shit. She's not going to be shit, but she might be. And people go, oh, she was a bit shit in there. But that's it. For us, it's like, you're Stuart Goldsmith. That's your real name. You wrote this shit. You made me come here. You were on your Twitter all week telling me to buy this ticket. It's fucking shit. You've wasted my time. I hate you. I don't hate your comedy. I fucking hate you. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're playing with. <laughs> so and you, no one else you were at my gig last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was. I was the one that sent that email. <laughs> in other forms of art, it's not quite the same. So even within rap, there's some distance. You can do a, a live rap show, but it's all songs that... Think about how you pick your set list. You pick your songs based on what everybody downloads, what everybody streams on iTunes and, uh, and Spotify... You know that everybody loves these 12 songs. That's interesting. You could so do you're in your, a terrible you mood. Your, your, you could do your set list by looking at Spotify and going, yeah. okay, number one, that's the closer. Everyone number two, that's the opener. Obvious, obvious. <laughs> and they don't want you to change the joke. You do your best ever joke. You go, why the fuck is Stu still doing this joke? Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious, but he's still doing it. 15 years later there's actually one of your gags that I still do I don't do it in my set <laughs> I tell people all the time what's that okay, I that. fucking love it it's where you say um, uh, yeah I'm, uh, you, some of you might know I'm wearing morels <laughs> it's a look that says I'm not wearing a fleece but I own one <laughs> That's my fucking one of my favourite gags that was... of all time ever. Bless you. That was my opener for like three years until I realised I... Because at the time I did wear Merrells all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and then I found myself once going, oh, I better wear those Merrells so I can do... Oh, and then that's, 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 that's my cardigan <laughs> yeah. moment. Yeah, that's yeah, what happens. yeah. So you had to get rid of it. <laughs> but honestly, like people always like, oh, no, you love that Louis C.K. Or that Bill Hicks thing where he's a really complex... I, that, that shit, I respect all that complicated shit. But I love a fucking silly gag more than anything else, you know? Like, when people talk about Bill Hicks, like, it was amazing the way he just rocked the system and he, 
you know, he talks about drugs and blah, blah, blah. My, you know what my favourite Bill Hicks gag is? It's the one about the hump of hate, right? <laughs> Where he says, like, he, he, he used to get dragged by these two female friends to go to a nightclub. And he fucking hate nightclubs. And he'd go there with his hump of... Like, he stored up all this hate like a camel into his, into his back. <laughs> and he just walked, like, huddled and just smoking furiously into this club with his hump of hate and just stand there against the wall smoking. And the, the girls would come up to go, Bill... Come and have a dance. I'm not fucking dancing. Come have a dance. No, I'm not fucking dancing. Hey, Bill, come and dance. As you know, everybody will know how good you are in bed. You know, all the girls, they'll know by how well you dance. And he goes, that's bullshit. He goes, if I get up there and, and I dance, I'm, you know, I'm there in the spotlight and I'm just really in the moment, I just take off my jacket and I'm feeling it, just really shaking my hips, getting into it, singing along difference does it make how good I am in bed? I'm gay. <laughs> What's your favourite bit of your gear? What, what, what? Mine? Yeah. Oh, what? hands down. It's a, it's a, it's a bit that I, f- I briefly fought the comedian Joe Bore over. We were in uh, Nottingham together on some shitty weekend and, um, we were just walking down by the canal and I made an observation that made him cry and he just said, dude, are you going to use that? And I, n- I never use, I, my gags don't work that way. I always just make it on stage and then build it off of that. He, I was like, what? He goes, are you going to use that? Because that's hilarious. And I said, nah, it's just like, I'm just saying like, it's just an observation about canals. Like, He's like, no, dude, that's hel- I'm taking that if you're not, and I know I was like, okay, what is it? What is it exactly? Because now I'm worried. And he was like, you know, like what you're saying about when you see a, a, a boat come by. And um, I said, all right, I'll, I'll try it out on stage tonight. And if it's, sh- if it's shit, you can have it. It's yours. And he goes, all right, all right. Because he'd obviously seen an angle on it. And I went up on stage and I said something about, like, uh, I know, like, you see me rap. I, I, just relax because I'm not trying to be gangster. I'm not trying to, I'm not street. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not fucking gangster. I, I wave back at boats, at people on boats, you know? <laughs> I'm not that guy, right? You know? And the wave of laughter that came back, I extended it. I had, there's a version of that gag that's like three minutes long. Right. With an act out. Yeah, with an act yeah, out. Yeah, 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 lovely. Talking about people on a boat going by me, waving, <laughs> being with my daughter and her going, who are you waving at? And me going, like, I don't really know, but this is what I've got to do. There's like a whole act out version of it or there's a one line version of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a minute and a half version of it if I'm struggling for time. It was like a huge part of my set for five years. Yeah. And, why, and, and it was so enjoyable because why? Because it was like the cardigan thing. It said everything you needed to know about me. I'm not, I'm not gangster. I wave back at people on boats. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it says everything you need to know about me. I'm smart enough to be self-aware. I am street, but I'm not that street. I'm observational, but I'm not an observational comic per se. And most of all, I'm silly, man. Like, silliness is the thing, like, that's the thing I really, really love. I love having a point, I really do. And I don't do stand-up in the same way like we were talking about what's the point in 
art if it doesn't mean something to you before you know i'd rather just not do it or earn money through advertising just do something different i feel that more strongly than anything with with stand-up if i haven't got a reason to be up there i I don't want to be there that said me doing stand-up without some utter silliness i don't ever want to see that if it's all about politics or race or the importance of understanding where rap comes from or some earnest shit. I just, I can't be asked. To me, that's not what... And there's a place for it. I get it. I really do. And I respect the people that do it and do it well, especially the ones that do it well, because I think that's hard. You know, the Mark Thomases of this world to do it well, it's just tricky. But for me... A true comedian is a is a clown, really. A true comedian is like, ironically, like Dr. Brown, you know, someone who can just do something without words that's so stupid that if you don't laugh, you're not a human being, you know? And for me, that's the essence of comedy. And if I'm not doing something stupid in in 20 minutes, if there's not at least three minutes of utter stupidity, <laughs> then uh, I don't know, man, like... I, I, I don't know. I think your ego's crept in too far. Maybe the vanity's kicked in. Do you do you feel like you... It's like me ripped. Imagine if I came back to stand up <laughs> and I was ripped. <laughs> and I was like Russell Howard. I only just wore tiny T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Joel Dommer, you know. Yeah. I I wouldn't be as funny. I would. I, I guarantee I'd still be funny, but I'd be 27 to 28% less funny if I was ripped. I'm throwing that out there. I believe you. I believe you. That, yeah, that, that seems to resonate with the persona. Do you, do you think that you achieved the level that you were capable of? I don't mean in terms of how no. funny you were. No, but no, in no. Terms no. Of Not in the slightest. The, the Not success. even close. Not even close. Not even close. I, my promoter is a live nation, right? They did all my tours. They told me where I should be. I know where I should be. Dude, you know for a fact there are comics that aren't half as good as me who are filling arenas right now. We both know that. I'm not bigging myself up. That's fucking fact. I did nod at that, respectfully. (laughs) I wasn't just leaving Darhane That's fucking (laughs) fact. They know who they are. I know who they are. They know when I say that they know who they are. And if they want to have a beef about it, go for it. I'm not cussing you. Say well done. It's amazing. You're not as good as me. But it's amazing. Like, well done. It's incredible. That's what you can do with stand-up, you know? With a little bit of intelligence, a little bit of ability, a little bit of talent, you can take it that far. Anyone who thinks I didn't have the option to do that is fucking deluded. I chose not to do it. Ask anyone at Live Nation. They'll tell you, Doc Brown, fucking hell, yeah, he's the most hardest person to work with because what the fuck does he want, you know? I remember the head of Live Nation saying to me, dude, this is what we do, 2014, right? And he sent me a list. He had his, per- his people send me a list of all the potential dates and he met with me in person and he said, uh, buy a house off of this. And I know what that means to you because you've got two young kids. You can buy a house outright, right? Fuck a mortgage. We do this, you buy a house... We move on to the next one. And he sent me the, they had these people send me the dates, like 220 dates. 
Let's see. I went, hmm. I'm going to do 14 of these days. <laughs> um, all, uh, yeah, 13 of them are these ones. Oh, what, the ones in and around the M25? Yeah, yeah, those ones. And then that one in Manchester, because I, I really like weekends in Manchester. <laughs> I've got a mate. I've got a mate. I've got a mate I can get drunk with. And they're like, right, are you serious? Like, yeah, I'm fucking serious. And and that's what it was. And I did three tours, I think. I com- com- probably combined all three tours, all three brand new, not even hours, like hour and a half. Probably did 56 dates in total. That's probably even a, a wild estimation. It's probably less than that. I, d- I just didn't like being alone for that long, man. And uh, Nothing seemed worth it. And then underneath all of that as well was two things. A fear of being the biggest comic in the UK. I was scared of that. I was scared of... I was watching what other comics were doing. And I, this guy's hilarious. Oh, now he's on TV. Now he's on TV a lot. Now he's on TV too much. Now he's got six people trying to write him something to say on Thursday because he was on TV on Tuesday. And I just thought, I don't know if I can live that life. So there was that element. And of course, you know, the invasion into your privacy and Sean Walsh strictly come dancing. I That's not my life. Do you know what I mean? And then... The other element was purely artistic. I just thought, I think stand-up works in a big room. I think it gets shitter and shitter. And that sounds so po-faced and such a lose. Oh, no, actually, my stand-up's really important because I only do it in 50-seaters. No, you only do it in 50-seaters because you're not that good. You're not that funny and you can't fill a bigger venue. I'm not saying it because of that. I genuinely, as an audience member... I just like it in smaller rooms. I, I I was a huge, like I said, my dad made me a fan of some of some real niche comedy. And one of my big things in the early nineties was John, John Shuttleworth. I used to love listening to John Shuttleworth, and I I went and saw him live numerous times. And then, I mean, I, I travelled because. I thought the smaller the, the shit of the venue, the better. The, I, even then, I knew as a teenager. I just, if you know anything about the character, if you don't, look him up. It's fucking hilarious. I can't go back to savory now. Can't go back to savory now. I mean, it, just, he's the pinnacle of musical comedy for me. But anyway, you know, it's important for his character that the show, the, the venues are quite shit. But he was just too good. So I, I remember I'd gone to see him, I think, at the waterfront in Norwich. I'm not from Norwich, I'm from London. I travelled there because I just thought that was, it feels right, feels right. And this is pre-Partridge, you know. And then, you know, he was at the Bloomsbury, I think, in London. I was like, well, I can't not see him. And so I went, eh, there's something missing. Not from Graham's performance, he's fucking absolutely superb. But it didn't feel right that 550 people were laughing. And I can't tell you... That is so. That is so perverse. Sure, but it's just. But okay, real. So, so on just... the boss of Live Nation, we're having this meeting, and I said, "Okay, that's fine. You can do half the size venues. Just do four hundred and forty dates." Mm. Do you know what I mean? That, there must have been some element of like, yeah. look, we've got and a I, thing. You've got a I product. Just this do it this is the thing. I had, right? I had the two issues. 
I couldn't. And the loneliness the will get dates. you. Will get your best mate from school who doesn't have a job to be yeah. a driver and your tour Don't manager. Get me wrong, I definitely could have done things differently. There's, there's, basically the short answer to your question, which I think I did as you were asking it. I'm, I, I'm so clear on it. But the short answer is, I should be a multi-millionaire, and I should be turning down podcasts like this. I should be really hard to reach. <laughs> I shouldn't have the same number for you to be able to text me directly and say, will you be on my podcast? I should be a real cunt. Uh, but I just chose something else. I don't know. I want to be in... I want to sit in the pub on a Wednesday night with my mates. I want to do boring shit with my kids and not be bothered, like... And at the same time, I want to live my life in show business. And is that... such a strange oxymoron. Well, I was just about to say, that sounds... The first half of that, before I want to live my life in show business, that sounds really healthy. That sounds really really like mentally healthy. That sounds like, oh, this guy's going to be happy. You walked away from the rich and famous contract? That's great. The problem is, I was born to be an entertainer. And I knew it in 10 years, the 10 plus years that I was doing youth work, which I found really fulfilling. And I'm able to bring a lot too, actually, because of my semi-celebrity status, whatever you want to call it, which is quite nice. It's quite a nice give back. But I knew it even when I was doing it full time. In the wankiest way possible, I was born to entertain. And to not do it seems... I mean, I'm churlish at the best of times, but to not do it at all seems madness. So, and I don't think I'd be happy. Is is there any part of it that wasn't a choice? Is there any part of it whereby you sort of tried something and it didn't go as well as you wanted or it, it didn't get no. the reaction? The only wanted? thing that wasn't a choice was doing stand-up for the first time. That was not my choice. That was a combination of Ben Walker and Paul Schlesinger. It wasn't my choice. Um, everything else I chose, I was very very instrumental in the way that it went. I chose to have a small shit tour. I chose to turn down incredible opportunities. Have a think about this, right? Most people know, if you know about comedy in the UK, you know who I am, right? Name a panel show I've been on. Never been on one. Yeah. Ever. That's not because of racism. (laughs) Do you know how easy it would be for me to go, yeah, thing is... Do you know what I mean? Like, there's obviously some racial shit going on because I never get on. I've been asked to do all of them a million times. I've never said yes once to any of them. Um, That's another good few grand I've lost. But I don't... I don't... I just don't... I don't watch them. I don't enjoy watching them. And I don't have anything against the companies who make them or the comics who choose to do them. It makes total sense. They need to put bums on seats for their tours... I just, I think I struggle to make a meal for someone that I wouldn't eat myself, you know? And um, I know there's probably someone, if not more than someone, sat there listening to that thinking, you fucking pretentious wanker. Call it like you see it. I respect it. it. That just felt the right thing to do. So... In my mind, absolutely no question, I've shot myself in the foot career-wise many times. Many times. And I've said no more than I've needed to say no. 
to 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 things. And did those did those choices feel at the time and or now? Did they feel like sensible, mentally healthy choices, or did they feel like the expression of an anxiety and a depression? I think it's a mixture. I think sometimes it was definitely a a, a fear of a fame, a fear of losing privacy, a fear of success, and what that would mean in terms of what I had to do next, um, which I'm obviously not as proud of. And other times it was definitely like, nah, that's shit. I actually think that's a shit thing to do. <laughs> I'm not going to enjoy it. And it was the right move. You know? So I say it's a definite combo. Is there, are there parallels with your... Because it seems there are certain parallels with your rap and your comedy careers in terms of what you wanted from them, the, the fix you got from them. Yeah, but the big difference is I actually made money from one of them. <laughs> Did you turn down similar opportunities in rap to the ones in comedy? No. The, the, the big difference with rap is culturally, you say you're a don. Like, it's part of the profile. Say, like, I'm the fucking best. I'm the number one, I'm the best rapper you've ever heard in your life. That's a big, big difference. And there's nothing in rap that I would have turned down willingly. I would, If someone was, was wanted to make me the biggest rap star in the world, I would have took it, man. I was young. I was pumped full of ego and testosterone. There was no, there was no deeper question going on in my mind at that time other than if somehow you can make me the best rapper in the world, please, let's just make it happen. And the only real sadness I have around that, looking back, is that there were a couple of opportunities that I could have made more of that I didn't. So, like, when I was working with Mark Ronson, you know, it was at a pivotal time in his career where he was moving from where I knew him. I mean, when I knew him, he was a hip-hop DJ and not much more than that, apart from the fact that he'd started DJing big fashion parties through his sister or big uh, record label parties. And he played Puff Daddy's birthday while I knew him, you know. So he started to get bigger gigs. But he wasn't, like, a musician. He didn't have, like, a band and all of that. That started um, as I was you know, doing, like, little DJ gigs with him and whatnot. And um, he was putting together something really different that ended up becoming... It sort of started off as, like, you know, funky, hip-hoppy versions of rock and roll tunes that became the album version, you know, almost working out on stage. And I was there at that time. So a more forthright rapper would have said, dude, like, let me jump on this, let me jump on that. I know you're developing this song with Amy, developing this song with Lily Allen, you know, doing this with Santi, Santi Gold or Daniel Merriweather. Like, let me jump on, jump on this. There were eight-bar verse. I could have been cool about it, but I just never asked. I just never asked because I just thought, oh, that's a dick move. That's too polite. It, it seems to me that this reminds me of, I think, one of the central things about you as a, if not as a performer, as a kind of a creative industry. You are your own creative industry. You're like, 
okay, so then I decided to do a kid's book and then I did a kid's book. You know, I so decided weird. to put out five rap albums. It's They're so weird because there. that's how it must look to people and I get, I get it. But from inside my house, that's just not how it is. So with the kid's book, you know, I'd had kids for, for a while wanted to write something that I thought could sit on the shelf next to them, but never really pushed myself to do it. It was the illustrator that came on and was the conduit, just the same way Ben and Paul were the conduits for me starting stand-up. They're just like, yeah, you can do this, you know. So it's that little bit of added belief. By the time the book came out, it took so long. They were old enough, they didn't even care anymore. <laughs> same with the CBB's bedtime stories. I waited so long to get on. By the time I was on, they didn't even watch CBBS anymore. Sure. Know? So, like, but these things have happened. I know how it looks on the outside. It's like it's this measured guy. I've done this. Now I'm going to do this. Now I'm gonna do... it's really in in my life. It's just like uh, stand up's just not really doing it for me right now. I uh, don't really know what I'm going to do next. And then something comes along. You think ah, oh, it looks quite interesting. Have I got the skill set? Yeah, probably. I have a bash. And people That's will take the vibe. And it's people not... will take your call. People will take my call. That's true. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people, if you look at Johnny Comedian, if you look at the next guy, That's true. the next person, that is true. I, they might have all of these ideas. I can't, they don't take the swings. You I know? can't deny that, uh, you know, I do have that advantage of people going, maybe you will be good at it. It's mm-hmm. not a bad shout. Let's, let's test it out. So I, I definitely have that advantage. But where I'm at a disadvantage is... I'm not the don of anything. Like, you know, you have the jack of all trades and the master of none. I think that describes me pretty well. I'm not, I'm not the don of comedy. I never, like, got to the pinnacle of comedy and then went, right, now I'm going to get to the pinnacle of children's books. Now I'm going to be the greatest actor ever. No, I just feel like I'm a writer and a performer. Like, those are the two things I definitely know I can do. How they... Uh, sort of come together and present themselves as an actual commodity that you can buy. I don't know. I don't know. But I know there'll always be humour involved somehow. There might be something musical involved somehow. But I refuse to say I'm this one thing because no one thing has ever grabbed me like that. The only thing that's ever grabbed me like that, I'd say, would be indie music. And I'm shit at indie. <laughs> so I assume you've that tried. That sort of solved itself. Of course I've tried. Uh, the first band I was ever in was an indie band. I was about 15. And I sang. We did Smashing Pumpkins covers and Lemonheads, um, R.E.M., <laughs> Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, man. Do, this might be totally wrong. But is there an element of your creative life where you... And I'm just trying to sew together various things that we talked about here. So tell me if this, is, if this is a totally wrong instinct. Is there an element of your creative life whereby you really believe in yourself one day and then you really don't the next day? Yeah. I'd say every element. I don't think there's a single thing that I do. Apart from maybe certain elements of rap... Where I just think, fuck you, man, I can rap. You can't even rap. Sharp. <laughs> but um, I'd say pretty much everything. Like, one day I think, 
this is amazing. And the next day I think, oh my God, I'm in way over my head. I'm yeah. in way over my head, you know? Um, the first time I remember feeling that, I mean, I felt that every day in comedy, but the first time I really remember feeling it profoundly was when I started to talk to comedians and they were funny off stage. And I was like, oh my God, like these guys, they're born to do this shit. You're an imposter, man. You're not this funny off stage. You're not funny at all. <laughs> my friends, my actual friends, my real friends out like from before show business, they're the ones who just won't accept the comedy thing. They'll never come and see me do stand up. Is that they're just, right? Yeah, they just won't accept. They're just like, you're not <laughs> fucking funny. <laughs> and you're the least funny person out of the whole friend group. Yeah. And you know what? It's true. It's true. But there's a crucial skill that I've got that none of them have got. They're all way... Like, the funniest people I know are not comedians. They're definitely my friends. They make me piss myself, cry tears of laughter. But they couldn't articulate what they do. So in every friend group, you always have one guy and they go, oh, Robbie's so funny. He's so funny. Oh, I'm always saying you should do stand-up. His stories are amazing. He's so funny. He makes us piss ourselves. But Rob can't fucking articulate. He can't bottle what he says and does. He can't do it. Whereas me and you can see some shit happening and bottle it. We know how to just go, suck it up. We're like the fucking Ghostbusters, you know, with that thing that they've got where they can just suck a ghost up you know, and it's just in that fucking box. That's that comics, man. Like, we can just see something on a whole other spiritual plane and just go... I'm taking that. I'm putting it in the box. He was like, oh, you better not say that around Ben because he'll turn that into a joke. I never do that. What I'm able to do is something on a plane that I can't even fucking explain to you because you're a normal. You're not a comic. Yeah? You're just a human being. You're a civilian. There's six, seven civilians standing around having a conversation. Someone says something and it's fucking hilarious, this story that they're telling. Everyone laughs. There's an interjection here and there that makes everyone laugh again. What I'm putting in my Ghostbuster box is not your story. It's something in the essence, the timing, the rhythm, the way that you told it, the confidence you told it with, the interjection that came in, when it came in, what it, what, how it shifted the reaction from the rest of the group. All of that. I'm bottling that. I'm putting it in a box. I'm taking it. I'm fucking stealing it. And you can't even sue me because you don't even know what the fuck you're suing me for. <laughs> so tell me then. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Only yeah, a comic course. would know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And did you, when you were writing comedy, well, you would, you would write the raps and everything else would kind of coalesce in between the raps? Yeah, I started off, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And Ben Walker said, dude, these raps are hilarious, man. Just keep writing them, keep writing them. And these are the ones that he's got like five, six million hits each on YouTube yeah, from yeah, yeah. years ago. I remember yeah. they were some of the first stuff that I saw on YouTube. Of course. <laughs> it was an easy way to sort of bottle what I was doing. Yeah. But actually, the comic within me was growing in those moments between. Because the raps became what big jokes for normal comics <laughs> would be. Mm -hmm. Islands, essentially. Mm -hmm. So this one went well, trying out some new stuff. It might not go well, but I know I've got this piece of gold there. You just swim towards that little island there, get there, it'll be fine. That's what those raps became. 
And then to challenge myself, whenever I did a 20, I'd say, right, three reps. You won somewhere near the start, won somewhere in the middle and closed with another one. But you got to get there. You got to get there. You know, and I push myself and push myself and push myself, make the gaps wider, wider. Two reps now, one at the beginning, one at the end. Or uh, towards the end, I would be like, okay, two reps, but no music. Mm-hmm. Just you just have to do your them. Apollo set. I remember was Apollo like, set was one, one of the first times the I end, did it. No, no music. music. Yeah. yeah. So push yourself, push yourself, and unbelievably, the comics that I have a spe- I reserve a special kind of hatred for are the ones that would come to me and go, ah, oh, you know these backhanded fucking compliments. Ah, oh, I wish I was like you, man. I was so, I was so jealous of you. You know, you just. If, if I could cheat like you, you know, fucking, <laughs> you know, you got the raps. Ah, oh, I, I wish I could have that, you know. Sorry, what? No, I'm just saying, you know, because obviously you don't have to do jokes. Like, it's just, ah, uh, must be just so much easier for you and you just kill it. You're impossible to follow. You're impossible to follow because you just got these amazing moments. I wish I could have a moment like that. I've just got to write 20 really interesting, complicated jokes. Uh, 20 minutes worth of really interesting, complicated jokes. For that's just, I wish I had what you had, though, man. No, those kind of things. Get the mate, get the fuck out of my face before I knock you out of this fucking green room. You know, fuck you, on so many levels. Fuck you, because I do twenty minutes of comedy same way you do, with three minutes total of rap, and in those minutes, in each of those sixty seconds, I've got more jokes in sixty seconds than you've got in seven or eight minutes of your set, and I'm cheating. I'm operating on a whole fucking different level. That shit used to drive me up the wall, man. I'm not a gimmick. I was never a gimmick comic. And from the start, I hated musical comedy. I hated it. <laughs> I saw it. I was seeing it around me, seeing comics go, oh, a really funny song about that, and here's how it goes. It was so bait. It was so telegraphed. I hated everything about it. So what I used to do was... I'd make this music with one of my old rap producers, you know. I'd come down, and while everyone was getting their beers in the green room and whatnot, I'd go to the sound man with my CD or my USB stick, and I'd go, I'd write down, i say, at some point, I don't know when, I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. When I say this slide, it's not a joke, it's just a series of words. When I say that series of words, press play. Don't mm-hmm. worry about anything else. You know, when should I press stop? Don't worry about that. I got it all tied out. I'd produce it myself, like work out where it stopped. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have to press stop. Mm-hmm. It would stop and I go back into jokes, you know? Never went wrong. All those years. I never needed any rehearsal. I just say, when you hear me say those five words, press play and we're good. And those five words were so meticulous, like they'd seem like nothing. So I say, yeah, but, you know, that's how it is sometimes. Throw away, and that would be the the cue. And if the dude was sharp enough, he'd press play, you know? If he didn't, on the occasion he didn't, it was too subtle, he missed it. It's fine, it's comedy, man, you know, just work around it. But 90% of the time, they'd clock it, and they'd press play, and I'd know exactly how many seconds of silence I'd recorded into the track. I'd know exactly when i hear the first hi-hat what I'm going to do next. And I just seamlessly go into the rap and it would blow people's fucking minds 
like it was the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make a living in this shit. Man. That's crazy. I mean, I'm really, <laughs> for people who've not seen it, for the uh, uh, world's population minus six million who haven't seen the bits mm. on, on YouTube. Like, I mean, you know, you're not overestimating the result of that. That slang translations bit, like, I still remember sections of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I people, ejaculated people come loudly, up, then walked off proudly. You know, People like, come I mean, up to me in the street and, and <laughs> quote it, like, I've never heard it before. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Did I, it... Did it cost you anything in terms of credibility? In the rap world? In the rap world. Uh, uh, only a tiny bit. Um, it's actually been much harder the other way around for comics to accept me as a comic. Um, in the rap world, initially, there was a little bit of like, oh, he's taking a piss out of rap. And then I would always say, come and watch the show. Because I felt I was elevating rap, you know? You know, I, I remember watching all sorts of rappers when I was a kid, like the Beastie Boys, you know, De La Soul, N.W.A., people who would poke fun at things that you just weren't supposed to poke fun at within rap and recognise that a 4-4 beat is just a template to do whatever the fuck you want. As long as it's creative and the rhyme bangs and you can rap properly, it's fine. You know what stopped overnight when I got into doing rap comedy? was the comedians who do a funny little rap at the end of their sets. That just suddenly stopped. That's interesting. You know? <laughs> it's really funny because, you know, <laughs> obviously, I'm uh, quite a middle-class guy. and uh, <laughs> But nevertheless, <laughs> and the beat starts, and the music's terrible, and the rap's terrible, and it's funny because it's terrible. That stopped overnight because... What I was doing was never parody. It wasn't funny because it was shit. Mm. It was good and it was funny. That was that was a new concept. And there's no coincidence that off of the strength of that, you have things like, you know, like man's not hot and people just do nothing and mm -hmm. all, all these elements where it's like the lines are slightly blurred. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is funny, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's quite good, you know? People just do nothing. They got like seriously good grime artists that yes. they collaborate with. You know, um, similar with 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 Michael with Michael Depar and who's that? Um, he's the comedian that does Man's Not Hot. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you know, it, none of that stuff's lost on me. It, it was a, it was a new wave that I was undertaking. What was lost on me was that I was creating any new wave. I just did what I thought was funny <laughs> that's just it I just thought this will be funny and that is literally it it's funny thing about that slang thing was I remember doing it on tour in Dubai and I was with this old comic um, called Mickey Hutton you know he was in his 50s seasoned dude and he watched me for the first time that first night, as, as you do when you're touring with someone, you watch each other's gig the first night, know what you're dealing with. And I did the slang thing, and he came to me afterwards. He said, ah, yeah, you guys, you're pretty funny. You're pretty funny. He says, uh, see that thing at the end with the cards? I said, yeah. I expected him to say, that's genius. That's genius. He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. That's the, uh, that's the first thing you'll lose. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, I'm just saying, as you go forward with stand-up, 
That's the first thing you'll get rid of. And I was like, dude, is it? Fuck, that's my closer, man. He goes, oh, I know, I know. He closed with it. It killed. It killed. did really well. Just saying, the whole prop thing, if you're going to stay on the road, I guarantee you in six months, you'll never do it again. And I was like, all right, mate, great. And I was a bit like, <laughs> from that point, the whole, the rest of the trip, I was a bit like, this old guy, you know, telling the young guys, the young cats, like, what, what comedy? Six months later, I never even wanted to look at those fucking cars. <laughs> to have a prop as a comedian <laughs> is a fucking nightmare. So, like, you know, I was, I've always been a big drinker. You know, you go, you go, you go on the road, you're going to drink. You're not necessarily always going to remember to check the cards. <laughs> the order, the order of those cards, the way up they are, is crucial to that bit. I mean, it's like fuck. It's like working with Ali Cook. You yeah, know? yeah. It's yeah. like it's like magic. <laughs> the prep is everything. Yeah. If one of those cards is upside down, Ali, don't you're don't shake my hand as I'm walking up to the yeah, stage. Yeah, don't Cook. touch me. Don't look at me. <laughs> don't touch my suits. Um, you know, if one of those cards is upside down, I'm fucked because the track started. I, my time to deal with a mistake is is zero. I don't, there's, there's, there's no time. I can't go, oh, that one's upside down. No, sure, sure, I'm mid-rap. Sure. So obviously that started happening. And it was just like, fucking hell. Or sometimes I just completely forget them. Get there and go, oh, fuck, I haven't even got the cards. I think the, probably the very worst one was when I set it up and realised I hadn't brought the cards. <laughs> hadn't brought the cards. They're like, ah. Oh. Anyway, it's just like end on a completely you, different closer. Could you ever do it without the cards? Because you're articulate, yeah, we can hear totally, what you're saying. Totally, but, just... but the thing about stand-ups is we very rarely, once we work out a bit, we very rarely see the flexibility of that bit. True, It's yeah. other stand-ups who will go, dude, what you should do with that, just yeah. do this. And you yeah. go, oh my God, yeah, how yeah, did yeah. I not see that? It's because you're so emotionally in your bit. So, for example, I used to have a bit that always killed. It was... Um, what did I used to call it? I think I used to call it square brackets. And um, it was it was a concept of like, um, rap is so formulaic now that I could create you uh, a rap that can work for you. It could be a business for me. I can just sell it to you, you know, <laughs> in the same way that people sell legal documents with the square brackets, with the, you know, the bits blanked out. You just put your name in there. Yeah. I could create you a rap blueprint you could take that and you could just be a world famous rapper. That's how fucking shit rap is these days, you know. That was the sort of concept for the bit. And then I do a rap of that document. So I say, uh, yeah, what's up? It's your name. And I do these, like, throughout, I do these little bits where I change my voice and it would be what, was, what, what you put in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just do the blank. I do the blank every time, but in a different voice and have people cracking up. And initially, in my mind, the, the way to do it was to draw square brackets <laughs> on my hands. So I'd sh- get a Sharpie. And if you saw me during that period of my stand-up, any time, if you saw me in Sainsbury's, at any given time of day, I'd have square brackets on the palms of my hands. And then I don't, I'm not sure, even sure if it was another comic or if I finally saw the light. 
and just like made C inverted C shapes of my fingers. And I was like, yeah. I can just fucking do it with my fingers. <laughs> Why am I drawing on my hands? <laughs> There's two two last things. One is I just wanted to talk about very quickly. One is your album Stemmer, which I'm halfway through on the way over here. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, I'm really enjoying. I'm really Bless enjoying. You. I don't know. I don't keep in touch with rap, but that's the, probably for the best. Yeah, probably. <laughs> But on Papillon, when you're rapping about depression, or mm. on Empires, when you're talking... And these are both on, the, on your most recent album. Mm. On Empires, when you're talking about... It seems, just from, from one lesson on the way, walking down the road just now, it seems like you're rapping about the fact that you're not cool. Yeah. You know, that you're yeah, not part exactly of the genre. It. It's not good. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're not grime. Yeah. yeah. And you, that and ship like, sailed, is basically what I'm saying. Sure, sure, it's sure. It's a different empire now. Yeah, yeah. okay. And I just... I'm just interested in the extent to which you feel your your work in rap uh, genuinely says what's on your mind, and and is that different to what you could articulate with comedy? Like which 100%. of them? Which of them gives expression to the most honest bits of your psyche? Yeah, hundred percent. I would say like with the rap, the beautiful thing about rap is you don't have to justify anything so there are elements of that album that are 100 percent from me in the a1 first person and there are other elements that are completely the opposite I'm, I'm telling them in a first person way but it's a story that's been given to me by someone very close to me very dear to me and i want to be able to tell their story and then there are other ones where it's completely foreign story that fascinated me, but to tell it in the first person is the most immediate way to do it and the most interesting way to do it in rap. So I wanted Stemmer to be uh, reflective of, of the, the front cover. It's, it's men trying to be men and failing heroically. Um, that's, that's what, that was the concept that fascinated me, like... Um, and I mean men, I don't mean people, I don't mean men and women, I mean men. Um, and uh, I really wanted to follow that through in an honest, as, in as honest a way as possible. Um, in stand-up, I think it's very hard to be that explicit and have people not go, oh, why has he said this? Why has he said that? You know, um, in music, I think... Although it is harder in rap, because in rap, I think we, similar to stand-ups, we get attacked for saying, how can you say that? How can you say that? Hey, mate, it's a fucking song. Freddie Mercury said, Mama just killed a man. Yeah, sure, put sure. Put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger, now he's dead. No one was like, how could you say that? You know, but everyone does that to rappers. because and You know, the reason I actually think is it's racist. I don't think they believe that young black guys have the intelligence to speak in the third person, to tell somebody else's story in the first person, to play with that idea of what is a story, what is real, what isn't, what does it all mean? I don't think they think that young black guys have the intelligence to do that. And we love that. We love the fact that they don't because we can constantly play with it. Yeah, um, okay. And, and Stemmer is really a grown-up playing those same games. So Stemmer is 12 conversations with 12 different men and you just got to guess which one is, is, 
is the first person of my story. But it's it's all real, it's all from the heart and nothing on there is is make believe or, or fiction. Whereas in stand up, I'd say it's probably fifty fifty and then everything else is I mean, it's a free for all, isn't it? It's just it's all bollocks, whatever's most entertaining. <laughs> So that last question then, let's just come back to what I asked, what we kind of put a pin in an hour ago maybe, was is is your love and your desire to be the biggest rapper, is that what got in the way of the of being given the opportunity to be the biggest stand-up? No, I think... I think... As a youngster, I definitely wanted to be the biggest rapper in the world. As I got older, I realised that was impossible. By the time I was 30, I knew no one wanted to hear a 30-year-old rapper. I discovered stand-up. And one part of me creatively died and another part was born. So the two never really affected each other negatively in any real sense. I think once what stopped me being bigger as a stand-up was just Ben, really. It was just Ben not knowing what the fuck he wanted, <laughs> you know? And even in the midst of that, I made a healthy career, a healthy living, uh, you know, my kids are happy and somehow I'm still working and I'm still not playing the game still the most difficult artist to manage um, and people still want to work with me you know and I think maybe it's just because uh, I don't know I don't know why it is but I think a part of it is because people miss the real man people miss just being spoken to like a fucking ad adult with a little bit of honesty and, and show business is, is wrought with bullshit, you know? So every now and again when someone just goes, nah, nah, that sounds shit. I'm like, oh God, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. And everyone just relaxes, you know? And I think that's really been me throughout however I felt personally, whether I felt super confident and full of my ego or super anxious with zero ego. I like to think that with my business, with the business of showbiz, I've always just gone, yeah, man, that sounds cool. Or, no, nah, man, that sounds shit. <laughs> and it seems to have, I don't know, it's made me some friends and some enemies. Are you happy? Right now, I would say I'm grateful, man. Like, I'm super, super grateful. And I'm grateful for the little things. I'm grateful that my friends from before everything are still there. My wife from before everything is still there. And my kids don't think I'm a douche. I'm super grateful for those things. Thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs> So that was Doc, and indeed Ben, 
Thank you so much to him for coming on. I really appreciate uh, how candid he was. If you'd like to hear uh, even more stuff from Doc, if you'd like to hear a solid half hour of meeting Tom Hanks backstage at the LA BAFTAs before going on and uh, the gentle and kind things Tom said to him uh, in an attempt to help him sort his nerves out and the whole process that Doc had to go through, jumping through endless hoops, jumping through hurdles, over hurdles and through hoops for producers and then the the tension of, okay, now I've got this script that's been worked to death, dare I improvise and do what I want to do and what a particular person said to him that helped him decide, I really recommend that story. That's available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders on the Private Insiders Club podcast. There's also a little bit in there about um, how a, a key moment in Doc's career was all sort of my fault many years ago. So look forward to that. Thank you to Nathan Wood for editing this show and for uh, putting up heroically with uh, the technical challenges behind us and in front of us. Um, thanks to Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant. Thanks to uh, Rob Smouten for the music. Thanks to Asher Trelevin for the name of this podcast. I, uh, I every so often remember to thank lovely Asher. And... Um, and thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying it, please share it with the world. If you want to support it with the membership of the Insiders Club, that's fantastic. But of course, I understand not everyone can do that. And it's it's kind of nice that it's exclusive anyway. So if you are not able to support the show financially, please consider sharing it on iTunes, on Facebook, on any of your socials. You can uh, tag me at ComComPod on almost everything these days um, or email me info at comedianscomedian.com with feedback or suggestions for guests. Upcoming guests. Oh, I've got three absolute corkers in the can. And sorry, not in the can. Well, I've got, I've got, I've got about four corkers in the can. But I've got three absolute belters coming up who I've not yet interviewed. And if you would care to tiptoe over to the comedians comedian Facebook page, you can join in with a group of six and a half thousand kindred spirits um, who are fans of the show and like to post and talk about things and offer you know, discounted tickets they can't use anymore for London shows. And things like that. There's a few B memes there, but the quality's gone up now, so that's fine. Um, in the Facebook group, I post news of forthcoming guests, and you can get your chance to post a question there, to comment with a, a question for that guest, and then I hopefully remember to credit you appropriately when I'm talking to that person. But we've got some really fun curveballs coming up. Um, some people are really... They're like personal kind of comedy... I don't know quite comedy heroes of mine, but you know when you like an odd quirky thing and you're like, I'll get them. And they said yes. And you're like, yes, great. So um, lots of exciting stuff to come. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, those of you who uh, didn't hear the Phil Ellis podcast on which I last Happy New Year to you, go back and listen to that one. What a belter. Lots of chat about that. Thank you. Um, so that's all of that. Um, I feel like there might have been something else to promo. The tour dates at comedianscomedia.com slash tour. Hope you'll come along and see the show. And that will do. For now, I'll post Amble at you in just a second. So, I've not planned a post Amble, when have I ever? So, quite a fun thing happening uh, later today. I'm going to go and not exactly move in, but I've hired an office. I've hired a corner of an office um, with a bunch of uh, kind of graphic designers, I guess. There's probably, there's probably illustrators or something. I've probably misunderstood what they do in a pathetic, embarrassing, never had a real job way. Um, but for the first time ever, I've thought about this for ages. I always think of Joe Lysett. Joe uh, has an office space he talks about on, on this podcast. And I know other people have, you know, various different rooms in their house. But obviously with two kids running around, well, one kid running around and, and one kid um, 
God, she's just started cooing. And you go, oh, you're going to have a voice, aren't you? Brilliant. And um, anyway, various uh, distractions. I thought, let's try having an office. So I've kind of, I've got it. It's only three months while someone's away out of the country. So I'm not kind of tied down to it long term. I mean, I don't know whether it'll be good for creative work because a lot of my <laughs> inverted commas creative work, I've got to be walking around the room on my own and talking out loud. I find it quite... Um, uh, inhibiting if there's other people around but certainly in terms of getting podcast stuff done and get a, uh, in terms of getting um, research done for forthcoming guests and other projects I'm really hoping it's going to make a difference I'm hoping for a tangible difference so that's <laughs> is that tedious that's tedious isn't it I'm I'm really excited about it I'm I'm getting a, a, a fancy key fob later on today and I'm part of me feels like because there's other people there, part of me feels like, oh, is this the slippery slope? Is this the bit where you realise, hey, it's really nice to have an office and hang out with other humans and go for a coffee with other people. And then all of a sudden, the endless road miles start seeming less attractive. No, nope. I'm, I'm excited, though. I think it'll be uh, fun. And it will hopefully help me work out what happens in Edinburgh this year. Now, I'm not I'm not saying I'm going. I'm not saying I'm not going. The plan was to have a year off. It's just that what I'd like to do on my year off is go to Edinburgh. <laughs> is it better? Here's a question. I'm I'm uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll make my own decisions on this, but I would be interested in your thoughts. Is what's better, a change or a rest? Like, is it better to do it differently? Will it count as a rest if I go to Edinburgh but do... I'm considering doing, like, um, I could do a half run or even a full run of a small room, improvisy, work in progress, no pressure, playful. Basically, what I'm trying to get close to is the second half of my tour shows. Not necessarily this mini tour coming up. I'm doing this rather differently. But historically, what I do, as you'll know, is I do the hour-long show in the first half, and in the second half have a very brazen, upfront, reading ideas off index cards, playing around bit. And that's often really fun to do, funny to watch. It's, I think I'm good enough nowadays that even when it crashes and burns, we can get out of it in a funny way. So I don't think it gets tedious. Um, I, I quite like kind of shifting gear into sort of trying to do that for a whole run, to just take up a load of cards, not completely improvised, but maybe get up and write in the morning and then do a lunchtimey show and then just be at the festival. Maybe have like a hardcore third week of uh, podcast recordings and, and proper research, but to actually just be at the festival, to wander around, to see things. That might count as a year off, does it? <laughs> Who am I trying to kid here? Um, that, that That's like an acceptable year off if I go and just breathe in the festival for a bit and and uh, just let myself get a bit inspired. I'd like to go and see some stuff that isn't comedy. Imagine that. There's other stuff up there. I'd like to see some... I always go and see loads and loads of... Here's a thought. Here's a little seditious thought. I like collaborating, but I don't end up collaborating. Why is that? Is that because I... And too business-like to share the meagre income with anyone, or is it? Um, is it just because I? I don't know. I don't know why it is. I'm obsessed with a lot of the stuff. I'm so excited to go and see are the the kind of Spencer Jones, the Paul Currys, the John Luke Roberts, you know, the Lucy Pearmans, like really kind of interesting out there. I won't say clowny generally, although some of it is clown or clownish. I like seeing different stuff. I really like being stimulated with different stuff. 
Part of me wants to try dipping a toe into something like that. But then part of me thinks, don't ruin another thing by doing it. Do you know what I mean? Why not? It's like, part of me would like to be a singer-songwriter, but why ruin one of the last pleasures? Why, part of me would like to write a heist movie. But if I do that, maybe I'll stop enjoying heist movies because all I'll do is sit there and critically analyse them. And then I've taken away all my pleasures. Do you know what I mean? That's absolute thing number one. When considering turning your hobby into a job, realise, be aware ahead of time that you will kill your hobby. So maybe I won't do any of those things. But I could go and do some work in progress, right? Right? Just a little secret. I've always wanted to experiment. I'd like to try doing a fringe show with no flyers. I've got this feeling that flyers maybe don't do anything at all. But, But that'd be a good year to test it. I've got some other little infrastructural ideas that I could test to do with market research of one's audience. That could factor in it. And do you remember me saying... um, do you remember there was a, a post-amble a few months ago where I was talking about how how I've become hell to live with because I'm not writing anything? Well, I, that has... <laughs> I don't think that... Hopefully being hell to live with hasn't continued. But I am aware that uh, I've been a bit edgy. I've had a kind of a bit of an ennui, a bit of a malaise, something French either way, um, for the last couple of months. Obviously, it's very much sleep-dependent and I'm not getting any sleep. But... Um, but I, as soon as I had this idea, I kind of talked it over with my wife and she said, well, you could just go up there and do something new and just do a sort of no pressure, playful sort of thing. And then I started thinking of titles for it. And then I started thinking, yeah, I could have some ideas, couldn't I? I could do some writing. Oh, maybe the break that I've tried to give myself creatively for the last three or four months, three months, has has actually made me unhappy because, oh God, now I'm realising why I do it in the first place is so that I've got something to obsess over. And maybe I've had a malaise because I haven't had anything to obsess over. So, but that's, that's grim, isn't it? That's like finding out alcohol makes you funnier. That is a scary road to go, oh, well, provided I keep working with no breaks, I'll be okay. Does that sound healthy? Who knows? OK, so that's that's conclusion we've come to. Either I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a, a new material work in progress show for some or all of Edinburgh or I'm going to go back and see a therapist. <laughs> Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.